And then we will get started in the text this morning. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you so very much for Jesus once again. We thank you for sending Jesus to come and die on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. We are so very thankful for your word. We're so very thankful for your spirit that leads us and guides us and illuminates the meaning of the text for us and helps us apply the meaning of the text to our life. We ask, Father, that as we look into your word and as we see the truth that is found in it, that our hearts would uh, have a sense of conviction of sin, repentance of sin, and may we walk by the power of your spirit and be more like your son, Jesus. We are also very uh, mindful of many people in our congregation who are sick and and have many, many ailments, and we we pray for them and for healing in those situations and pray for those who are taking care, pray for the doctors in those situations. We also pray for Susan as she is uh, there waiting for test results and this this whole uh, in-between of where she is. And we just ask that you would calm her heart, that you will help the doctors see exactly what, what they need to see so that they can prescribe the right things so that, she, so that you can heal her through those means. We are so very thankful once again for Jesus and for what you're doing in our lives. Uh, we say this in your son's name. Amen. This morning, uh, please turn with me to Luke 13. Luke 13, and then just notice what is said in verse 1. It says, There were some present at that very time who had told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them and said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all those who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I've always found this text very striking Probably striking because my unbiblical mindset, I think I picked it up from just my own way of thinking, probably picked it up from Sunday school teachers and culture, is this mindset of what is probably known as retribution theology. Okay? So retribution theology, or we could call it Christian karma, basically has this doctrine. You do what's good, you get good. You do what's bad... You deserve it. And there's like this sinful default that I have, right? So when something bad happens in a community, I go, sinner. Something good happens, I go, righteous. Gets a little hazy, right, sometimes, where clearly a person's an atheist, and you go, well, what happens when a good thing happens to them? But let's not confuse the bad theology with facts, Let me give you an example, another example. I remember when I was in Bible college... It's around the time of Hurricane Katrina. Remember Katrina? I remember going to church that next Sunday, and every 
seems like every single Christian was like, the reason that happened was because of Mardi Gras. That's it. You want to know why New Orleans is underwater? Mardi Gras. And then, later on, that, that, that hurricane season, then there was Hurricane Rita, which was supposed to come down our driveway in Houston, and then it didn't. And we were able to be self-righteous at our church and go, why did Hurricane Rita run away? Obviously had to be because of the righteousness of this church, right? All self-righteousness. Completely, completely wrong. Jesus himself, in this passage, debunks it, right? He says, were they worse off? Were they worse sinners? That's why this... And he goes, no, no. And then he points away from, stop trying to figure out who's a worse sinner. Look at yourself, right? Repent yourself. Not a good, not a good theology. Another reason it's not a good theology is because it doesn't fit with the rest of the Bible. Think of this. If it is really true, God punishes... You do bad, you get bad, you do good, you do good, or you get good. How does grace work into that? Grace can't work into that. You receive good things based off the favor of God and not off of your merit. That, you can't have that system. Now, I'm not saying in any way that God isn't good, he isn't just, he isn't merciful, he isn't holy, that he doesn't have this sense of right and wrong. What I think happens is that we get this wrong perspective of how God deals with people. And then when we see things happen, because we have a bad perspective of how God deals with people, we get this bad interpretation of what we see. I think if we start with the Bible, get a biblical worldview, then things become a little bit clearer. God's righteous, God's holy, God's gracious, and he's merciful. He decides to work in the hearts of people that he decides And he punishes those whom he decides. Man is also held responsible. And there are times where uh, he deals with the believer different than he deals with the non-believer. He disciplines us as a father. And the non-believers, he judges like like a judge. I say all of this, and I start here, because of the text this morning in Proverbs 21. It might be possible that we read Proverbs 21 and go, Ah, evangelical Christian karma right there. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. That is not the case. I don't think it's ever been the case with God. What we're going to find in Proverbs 21, as we've been discussing this chapter, is this. We're answering the question, what does it look like? What does a wise person look like? And Solomon is contrasting the wise with the foolish. In this section, the wise are those who are submissive to God, and the foolish are those who are absolutely rebellious. Solomon is trying to convince us to go for wisdom, to be wise, to submit ourselves to God's word. That's what he's, that's what he's saying, submit ourselves to God. In this argument, he says, guys, when you're submissive to God's word, it works out better because... It's possible that by keeping God's word, you, get, you keep yourself out of trouble. And the natural consequences of your trouble could come and the government could throw you away for crimes. You could lose your house. So, so the idea is to, to argue to, for us to follow God's word, that this is a better principle. Follow God. That's better. Don't, don't rebel against the word of God because there are serious consequences. So we're going to see this, how God deals with the wise, how he deals with the, fo- with the wicked. 
So in Proverbs 21, we're just going to be in two verses this morning, verse 11 and 12. In verse 11, we're going to see how the Lord deals with the wise. He instructs them. We're going to see the instruction of the Lord and the different ways that he instructs. In verse 12, we're going to see God's judgment of the wicked and, just, and talk a little bit about God's judgment. The goal is that we seek God's wisdom and that we're submissive to God's word. And that we go, oh, that's what a wise person does? That should be in my life as well, right? That's a picture of a wise person. I want to be wise. Ergo, I want to be that. So notice verse 11. It says, when a scoffer is punished, the simple become wise. When the wise man is instructed, he gains knowledge. Now, We have seen this scoffer show up numerous times in the book of Proverbs. I like to think of Solomon in the book of Proverbs when he talks about foolishness. He kind of describes this spectrum of foolishness, right? And so you have these different people. They're foolish, but they're foolish different ways. And in this verse, we see two of those foolish people. We see the two opposite ends of that spectrum, right? So on the On the low end of the spectrum, you have the person that's known as the simple one, the naive one, literally the open-minded one. Not open-minded in the sense that he's willing to listen and weigh things and say, okay, this is the best course. It's the idea of he listens to everything. This one just listens to everything, has no discernment. Everything's true. Everything's right. This is true. This is true. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to listen to you, right? That's, That's the simple one. Then you have in the middle the one that's known as the fool. Probably could describe him as the one who's old enough to know better, but too young to care. That's kind of a really good description of the fool. He knows what's right. He knows what's wrong. He knows what he should be doing, and he does the opposite. He's willfully disobedient, okay? Then you then have the pinnacle of foolishness, which is the scoffer. The scoffer is that one who knows, who hates, who devises plans to go against God's law and God's wisdom. Okay, so the scoffer's the worst. He's the worst, the worst of the worst. He's the rebel, okay? So just notice here when it says, when a scoffer is punished, so the idea for punishment is is a legal punishment. It's a crime. He's appeared before a court, and there's a punishment that comes from a court hearing. That's, That's the word. That's what the word means. Actually, it probably has, uh, probably could easily be translated when a scoffer is fined, right? When he, when he gets a ticket and he has to pay money. In the Old Testament, there's numerous examples of when you would do something, like in Deuteronomy, you would do something and someone would get hurt. You would have to pay a monetary fine for your crime, Okay. So most likely, this is what Solomon is referring to, is some of these, uh, uh, these, these laws in the Mosaic law that talk about if you do this and somebody dies because your ox gets loose, you have to pay a fine for that person's life. Okay, That's the idea. <clears throat> so you have this idea of when, a, when, when, when the leadership and when a king, when they actually do find them according to God's law, when a scoffer is fined, notice, notice the consequence here. <clears throat> The simple become wise. The naive, they kind of see it and they go, I don't want that. I don't want that to happen, right? I don't want to lose my money, so I'm not going to do this. 
It might be hard in our context to think of, well, how would it be finding somebody getting a traffic ticket turn somebody who doesn't know into a God-fearer? And in our society, it's kind of detached, right? We're very good at keeping those things separate, or maybe we're not good at it at all, but our society does have these things separate, right? You have church things, and then you have secular things, right? There's no, they really don't meet. In this context, where Solomon's writing, where there was these laws on the book, to find the scoffer would be to point to God's word and say, see, chapter, verse, this is the consequence, this is God's prescribed consequence, we need to do this, and it's then that the, the open-minded, when he sees the whole process happen, he goes, I need to follow God's word. That, that's the idea. Okay. Now, there's a couple things we can learn from just this first part of this parallelism found here in Proverbs. First is this, is that sometimes punishments are, are not there to help the guilty, right, or to instruct the guilty. Solomon doesn't say, punish the scoffer so that he may see the error of his ways and turn. Now, he may do that by God's grace, but Solomon doesn't point that out. He points out that sometimes the punishment may not change the scoffer, right? It's also true that this punishment is meant to be done in such a way that the more naive people of society should be able to see it and go, uh-oh, I don't want to do that, Right? So this, this type of punishment can be instructive. I think it's also kind of interesting, too, if we were to invert this. So imagine a society did not fine the scoffer. Then I suppose the opposite would be true, right? That then the, why, then the, the fool might not turn. Because why, why should I? If, if I can do this, break the law, and not be fined, well, then I'll just continue to do what I'm doing, right? But I think the point, I think the point that, that we're really supposed to walk away with is this, is think of this, that the fining, this, this penal, this penal uh, punishment, when this is enacted in, in a way that's honoring to God, done with wisdom, notice that people become wise. There's a sense of repentance. Amen for that. Amen for times where God has used events and examples that, has, that we have seen, and we said, you know what? I do need to follow the Lord. I see that. That's a bad thing. I don't want that to happen to me. Maybe I should seek the Lord. Amen for that. Let's not discredit that God is a great teacher, the best teacher, and he will use myriads of things in ways that you and I can't even imagine. Amen for this, right? Amen for this. I think this is great. It's not great for the scoffer, but it's great for the guy who becomes wise, right? This is a great thing. But there's something better. I think it's great that the Lord can use this, but in the parallelism, there's something better, because notice the second part of the verse, and it says, and when, when a wise man is instructed, he gains knowledge. So you get the idea that the open-minded guy has to see something bad go down. And when he sees something bad go down, then he goes, okay, well, I don't want that. But then you would then have this other idea of when the wise man is instructed, just by God's word alone, doesn't need a visible example. He sees it and he trusts God's word alone and then says, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to follow God's word 
because that's what's right. So he doesn't have to be in that situation to see something go down. He just accepts it right from God's word, right? That's far better. It's far better to do this. So think of this. Here it says, verse 11 says, when a wise man is instructed, this word for instruction really has the idea of teaching somebody how to live, the proper way of applying truth. We could easily say from God's word that a wise person is somebody who knows how to read the Bible, knows how to interpret the Bible correctly, and then knows how to appropriately apply the Bible to their life and lives it. That's the idea of instructed. It's not just that somebody can read the Bible and then they know a lot of facts that call back to memory. That's good to a certain extent. The, the, the real thing with wisdom is the stuff that I know, do I understand it correctly as God wants me to understand it? And can I apply it correctly to my life and to the situations? So it's that person who is able then to look at God's word, see God's word, understand God's word, apply God's word. This one that can do that, who's instructed that way, notice what he'll gain from this. He gains knowledge. Now, we've seen this word knowledge before. I'm not sure this word knowledge that's found here in Proverbs deals with just he knows more. I really see this knowledge found in this verse of speaking of knowing truth, but but more importantly, knowing God himself. In in Solomon, in Proverbs, this is the great prize. This is the great thing about wisdom. Wisdom is a growing knowledge of God. I know God more and more. So the more I spend in his word, the more that I understand his word, the more that I apply his word, I learn about his will, I learn about his ways, and I know him more. I'm growing in my knowledge of him. I'm deepening in my relationship with him. This can only start after a person has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, right? who came and died on the cross for their sins, who was buried and rose again. Faith alone, in Christ alone, after that happens, there's a lot of other things that happen that we can't necessarily control, but they happen to us. And one of those is the indwelling Holy Spirit. And part of the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to the believer is to help us read the Bible, help us apply the truths that we find in the Bible to our life, and help us step out in faith and be obedient to this. But think of this. Think about how God deals with us as with deals with the wise. He deals with them by instructing them, teaching them, always so that they can know him more. It is true that as believers who have the indwelling Holy Spirit, we're taught by his word. And it's true that we also sin. We have bad perspectives. And I think when we talk about the Lord's instruction and the discipline of the believer, I really see that That's a major part of how God disciplines us, that conviction of sin as we read the scriptures. That's an important thing to have happen on a regular basis, to read the Bible, to see the truth, to see what he says, and to say, to have these moments of amen, praise the Lord, that's true, Uh uh-oh, I'm not right. And that that sense of uh uh-oh is part of God's discipline to us as believers, Sometimes we assume that when God disciplines the believer, 
It's this great thing where you lose everything. There's a fire. Your car breaks down. All these unfortunate events in life is God coming after us. The Bible doesn't support that either. No, he teaches us through his word. He, he teaches us, and there's that sense of conviction, and, and we repent of our sins. That's how he does it. There's times where God will even give you a great blessing, and you will see that great blessing and go, you know what, I, my life is not right, and I got a blessing. I am so sorry, Lord. You're, you're giving me all this great stuff, and I've been doing all of this? That also can be a discipline. There are times where he allows the consequences of our sin to come upon us. That is how God disciplines the believer. He instructs us, and he wants us to be more like Christ. He who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. And as we see in this text, for us as believers, he uses lots of things in our life. uses lots of things. He can use examples of other people. He uses his word. There's lots of things that teach us to be more like Jesus. Amen for all of it, right? Amen for all of it. Unfortunately, there's then this next verse. Notice what it says next. It says, The righteous one observes the house of the wicked. He throws down the wicked uh, down to ruin. So there's a little bit of a debate here. The beginning part of verse 12. Who is this righteous one? There are some translations and some people who assume that this righteous one is... Uh, the, the, the wise person that's talked about in verse 11. So this wise person who's, who, who gains wisdom, who knows God, and then is placed in a position to judge is then seen as then being God's instrument of judgment in a community, right? Because he's observing, he sees, and then he's the one that brings that house down to judgment. That's how some interpret it. There's others, like myself, who see this phrase, the righteous one, and say, look, that may, it's true that God uses godly judges, but it seems like Solomon is talking about something far greater than just penal judgment. And it appears, just to make sense of the parallelism, that the righteous one refers to God himself. This is God. He is the righteous one. Now, regardless of how you interpret this, you might say it's a man or it's God. I'm going to take it as God. Let's just think for a moment. What does this mean? What does it mean when we say that God is the righteous one? What does that mean that he's righteous? It means that he does what's right. It means that he loves what's right. Well, what's right? What God does. See, God acts according to himself. There is no standard outside of God. God, God. What God does, what God thinks, that's what's right. And so when he's righteous, it's, he's acting according to his character. He, he, he's acting according to his attributes, right? So when God acts righteously, he's just acting. And he himself is that standard of right and wrong. We have to look at God and say, okay, that's the standard of right is God himself. God doesn't have to have this intellectual conversation of, I wonder what's right. Well, let me ask myself. He just does, and what he does 
He, he is perfectly consistent with his attributes and his ways. This righteousness would include this intense love of doing what is right and this hatred of all of these things that are not like him, the sinful behavior. So what does this mean in thinking of this idea of the righteous one observes? Know this. God will always act according to his character. His character never changes. He is perfectly gracious, loving, merciful, holy, wrathful, sovereign, omnipresent, omniscient, right? He is all of his attributes together. These attributes do not infringe on each other or limit each other. He is perfectly all of those things. And when he makes a judgment as this one, as the judge, the righteous one, it is the right judgment. He, he can't be corrupted. He can't offer him a bribe. You know, what, what are you going to give him? What, what, what do you give the sovereign God, creator of the universe? Something he created? That, that seems like a really weird bribe, right? Hey, I know you can make this just by speaking it, but here you go. Maybe if I give it to you now might change your mind. No, he's not corrupted like that. He's no respecter of man. He doesn't, he doesn't care how much we've done for him or how little someone's done for him. He's no respecter. He's righteous. His judgment is true. His judgment is based off of his own character, right? And so then notice, the righteous one observes. Oh, man. Oh. Not only is he righteous, but he observes. And what kind of observation can he give? Oh, nothing like I can observe. Krista and I, we put cameras in the boys' room and in Krista's room to observe what goes on. We can see and we can hear. But guess what? They can move the cameras. They can cover the cameras. So our observation is limited and they can do stuff, and as long as they don't move, the motion sensor doesn't turn on, so it doesn't alert our phone that they're doing something in the room. Right? So we can observe. We can observe intently, but there's a limit. This God never grows tired. He is everywhere at all times and can focus full intention on every place in the earth at all time, he can exert the fullness of his power in all places at all time and not grow tired. This is the observation of this righteous one. So he observes, what does he observe? He observes the house of the wicked. Here, household has the idea of the, 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 everyone who's under the head of this person. Right? So this would include wife, child, would, may even include servants, right? and those who work for him. So he observes it all. He observes everything. He scrutinizes everything. You know, as a believer, there's no greater joy than to know that God will never leave me nor forsake me. There's no greater joy knowing that when I do things that in my heart I feel like I'm trying to please him, he knows my heart and he sees it. I'm so thankful for that. There is another part of me that understands this truth that goes, huh, he sees everything? He sees 
every... He knows everything? Oh, man. I am so sorry, Lord. (laughs) I'm so sorry that you have to know what I'm thinking about. Because sometimes it's not very good. So notice... He, being the righteous one, throws the wicked down to ruin. Now, sometimes this may happen in our sight, right? In our temple sight. This may happen or somebody does some crime and God allows the full consequences of that crime to happen in front of our eyes and they lose everything. That may happen. And that may be what's in mind here. It all comes to ruin. And we we, we see that, right? There's examples of this, right? Think of like, in the book of Esther, Haman. We can see that. We can see in a short time, here's this man who, who's really powerful. There's sin, there's things that he does, and then God, almost overnight, all crumbles, all fades. He can do that. and we, we, Sometimes we see that. Sometimes we don't see that, right? Sometimes the crumbling and the ruin... Really, only the people inside of the house know about the crumbling and the ruin. And to us on the outside, we can't see it. But ultimately, all those who are not in Christ, ultimately, all those who do not know Jesus Christ, will suffer eternal ruin. We should not be excited about that. That should not be something that we dance for glee. It's what God does. It's part of his judgment, this eternal conscious punishment away from the saving presence of God. He's going to do it. He tells us in his word. It's real. It, it should be one of these things that we look at with, through tears, right, of thinking, I know wicked people. And the principle is this is the consequence of God's judgment, Right? This is what happens. This is what happens when people rebel against God and they continue to rebel against God and continue on until the day of their death. And, and, then, and then the consequence is, is serious and irreversible. It, it should drive the believer, it should drive the believer to weep for our wicked neighbors. Right? It should drive us to say, I don't want anyone to suffer that But it is true. This is what happens. This is what God does. It's part of God's judgment. Now, for the believer, he disciplines us as children. All of those who are not his children, they see God differently. He is my father. They see him as a judge. I wouldn't want to stand in front of that judge who already knows and can argue the case better than I can argue against it. He knows. This is how God deals with people. He deals with people. He's working in people's hearts, and he's working on the hearts of the believers. He uses things to bring people to repentance. Amen. There's also people who rebel, and they come to ruin. You know, I was reminded this morning of a time when I was on, on a road trip with uh, some, of my, some of my friends, and we were, as we were driving, we saw the billboards. You remember those? Uh, billboards, those black and white billboards that had like a cheesy quote and then underneath it, it attributed the quote to God. You remember those? They were everywhere, at least where I was from. And so it'd be stuff like, haven't heard from you for a while, God. Right? 
supposedly get people to pray. And, and I always thought of them as being cheesy. I always kind of dismissed them and thought, you know, there's probably a better way to spend our money to get people to pray and to know Jesus than, than these billboards. And so as I was kind of uh, airing some of my misgivings of these billboards, my friend said, you know, well, the reason that I am walking with the Lord is because of one of those billboards. Great. So that was a little awkward. Um, and it was one of those awkward, it was one of those quotes of, you've been on earth this long and uh, you haven't read my word, God. Now, I, 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 I always am very uneasy anytime that somebody attributes quotes to God that God does not say. That is, that's theologically dangerous, okay? Just saying, I think that's theologically dangerous. But amen that he moves and he teaches and he uses those types of things, right? Amen that he instructs believers and he can even use a cheesy billboard to do it. Amen. Great. Praise the Lord. But as I look at this text and some of the advice that I think from this text, there's just a couple things I want to leave you with this morning. First, not only does God instruct us in various ways, but I, I should spend time in his word and I should see examples and I should say, you know what? I don't want to do that. That's, that's, a, that's something that's bad that happens. Here's a bad consequence of someone's sin. I don't want to go down that road. And so we should be quick to examine ourselves, and quick to say, I don't want to be in that position. To be quick to repent of our sins. To be quick to go to the scriptures and say, am I walking with the Lord? One of the other things, too, is that it's, it's better for me to learn from God's word and not have to need an example. I'm thankful for examples, and they serve great purpose. But I think the Lord would want us to learn from his word, spending time with him in his word. And so I should desire to spend time with Jesus in the word. I know that many of us, we do many things uh, with our morning routine, and sometimes we, we will read one verse, and one verse is better than no verse. But I would challenge you to spend more time than what you do with the Lord. So think about how much time you spent with him this past week. My challenge is spend a little bit more. That's the challenge, a little bit more. How about two verses? I double-dog dairy. I triple-dog dairy. No, I'm joking. Three verses. Can I get four? No. No, the advice would be, if, if, God, if the wise learn from God's word, then why would we not avail ourselves to the wisdom that's found here? And why would we not spend more time in it? There's another thing, too. I, I see that God also deals with the wicked, And I need to know that God is righteous and omniscient and omnipresent. And there are things that are happening in people's lives. And I might pray, God, smite them dead for all of the wickedness. But God already knows. My prayer and my desire should be, God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with such a one. Or, God, if I have a bad idea of what's going on there, give me information to help me understand what's going on. Right? I, I don't want to be the judge. I don't want to be the judge. But my sinful part of me does want to be the judge. And that's the problem.
I think one of the other things, too, is that I need to remember that God will discipline me as a child. And sometimes he will start with us first. And when he does, it's painful, but we should accept it and repent of our sins and move on. But ultimately, when, we, when I think about the judgment of God, I should have a desire to share the gospel with people and, and, and have the desire to show them from God's word the truth so that they may be like that one in verse 11, like the simple who sees God's word, who sees these examples, and then becomes wise. They're not rebellious, but they're submissive. That's the goal, right? So may the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Gracious Father, we are so, once again, very thankful for your watch care over our souls and that you help us, you lead us, and you guide us. We ask, Father, that we would learn from your word. We pray, Father, that we would learn the first time and that you would help us be receptive of your word. We are thankful for all of the ways that you have taught us your truth and you've taught us your word. We pray, Father, that we would be receptive of your teaching and your instruction. We also pray, Father, for Astoria and Warrington and for our county, Gearheart. Father, there are many people who do not know you. Will you give us a burden and a heart of compassion to share the gospel with them? Will you give us opportunities and boldness to take uh, those opportunities and share the message of Jesus with them? Father, will you give us a heart of empathy, not that we would seek for their destruction or their demise, but that we would see their repentance? And Father, may we see many because of your work, because of your word, because of your spirit working. May we see many come to know you and worship you as the one true God. And may you be honored and glorified through your work that is done through this county. Father, we just ask that you would give us uh, safety as we go home. Allow us to come back this evening ready to worship you and to learn more from your, uh, from your word. We thank you and love you for everything you've given us in your son's name. Amen.